Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Now, in this edition of Restoring the Soul, we reprise a conversation Michael had with John Lynch. John served for 27 years as a teaching pastor at Open Door Fellowship in Phoenix, Arizona, and as a gifted communicator. John's a vital True Face staff member, joining the team in 1997. Now, John has co-authored The Cure, Bo's Cafe, Behind the Mask, and his own story, On My Worst Day. Now, as Michael and John visit at the beginning of today's conversation, you'll hear them refer to a powerful film titled The Heart of Man, which tells a timeless tale of a father's relentless pursuit of his son. We at Restoring the Soul highly endorse this film, which can be seen on many streaming platforms. Again, it's titled The Heart of Man. So now, without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. John Lynch, we're finally talking and doing a podcast. How long have we talked about this? I think since 1963. I believe so. I was I was eight, and I just said we need to do this. I just I don't even know you yet, but I know, and I I I didn't know you because I wasn't born yet. But <laughs> I actually decided to be born because I'd heard that you had already right. existed for eight years. Right. So Ben, I can tell right away this is going to be a good conversation. <laughs> you know what's ironic is I talked to you twice on the phone over probably a five or six year span, and I've only been face to face with you twice. But we have so many people that are dear friends to both of us. And because I've read all of your material and memorized it in Latin, uh, I just I just have this real affection for you. And I, I feel like there's just a deeper connection than what is warranted based on the amount of time we spent together. How fun was it to get to be with each other at the Heart of Man premiere and just validate exactly what you're saying um, for years? I would run into people all over the place and uh, they would say, tell me about you. And they would talk about your impress on their life. And I just thought, I like this guy and I don't even know him yet. So uh, how fun, how, what a blast that was to be together and uh, get to hang out at least for a few minutes that night. Yeah. Hollywood in September. And we go, we both got to pretend like we were hipsters for a minute with uh, the uh, the DJ rhythm in the background at the Hollywood Club and everyone looking really great and in their 20s and me just going, I can't even pretend to be cool anymore. <laughs> We're old men amongst these folks, but it was a blast. That was so fun. So thank you to you for um, your role in the heart of man. You uh, You and some of your team there have really poured into – uh, the men and women that created that film and wrote the screenplay. And then your role in terms of the movie, where I learned some things about you that I didn't even know, and you were very vulnerable about uh, your abuse. And I literally have people come up to me and say, do you remember that guy in the movie who said, I thought God was disgusted with me? I'm like, yeah, I know him. And then they'll talk about how powerful that was to say, that's exactly how I felt. And then to talk about basically 
where you spoke out of today and how you've experienced healing. Yeah, thank you. I, I, that was, um, as I write about, I think in Worst Day, for a long time, I couldn't talk about that. I, I mean, that happened when I was in fifth grade, uh, got violated by a kid in a orange crate boxcar of train. And I think I just at that point just went, ah, no, I, no one can know this. This, uh, this is too hideous and nobody will get me and nobody will understand. I'll lose my seat at the table. And I had never told one person about that. It was wow. just, it was just, I, and everywhere I would go when I would meet, meet new people, I just thought it was written all over me. This is an abused person. This is a violated person. And even when I would be speaking places, I just thought, can we drive around the parking lot one more time? Cause I, I'm not ready to go in. So that, that has been quite a journey for me, Michael, uh, to be able to, I, I think I first told Bill, uh, through all, uh, we were, <laughs> we were outside getting ready to go back into session somewhere in Seattle or something. And I told him about it and he said, I am so sorry. And mm -hmm. And he was so kind and compassionate, but then he said, "All right, we gotta we gotta go back in. We're on five minutes." And I was underwhelmed by his response and my wife's response. I thought she would leave me for sure and be disgusted mm. with me. And instead, it was like, "I'm so sorry." And mm. uh, by the way, uh, dinner's on in ten minutes, so it, it has been. Now I can't stop talking about it. I want so much to make sure that things like that uh, don't get hidden about me. Yeah. And you're describing Bill, who, by the way, is one of my favorite people on the planet in the very first interview in the Restoring the Soul series, the first of now what will be 60 wow. interviews. Uh, but, but his response and your wife's response, if I'm reading you correctly, it's not they blew me off, right. but, but they, they were unfazed by it. Like, this doesn't change anything. Well said. And I thought, okay, um, Jesus, I'm trusting you with me. I'm going to lose my marriage. I'm going to lose my ministry. I'm going to lose all of this. And that's exactly what they were saying is maybe even Stacy would have said, uh, I probably knew. I probably didn't know the particulars, but I knew there was something. And wow. yeah, so, so, so sweet to see. You know, we, we make that line in Bo's Cafe, what if there was a place so safe that the worst of me could be known and I would discover that I'd be loved more, not less in the telling of it. Mm. And that, that idea that the people that love me most have been waiting so long to get to love me uh, mm. in those things that they know I'm hiding. Mm. John, what changed? What what series of events began to occur that on that day you told Bill that story when your whole life you had packaged it far, far away and even written a book about authenticity? That's right. Um, I wish I had a clean answer for you. Maybe, maybe I was just uh, tired because it takes a lot of energy uh, to be me when um, nobody in the world knows the thing that plagues me the most, mm -hmm. not a human being on the planet. And so uh, I think I just was lonely. I think I just wanted others to know that to be true about me and to see what would you do with it, Bill? It's interesting. I told Bill first, uh, not Stacy. It was like, I trust you so much, Bill, but if this doesn't work, at least I have my marriage. I can hide there, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it was just one of those situations where I don't think I went into that day knowing that I was going to tell anyone. Uh, hmm. But I think I was just in the middle of teaching these truths that we were teaching and thought uh, that this feels somewhat duplicit for me to keep not telling this about my past. Hmm. And so um, as a grown man, uh, pastor, theologian, author, you really, and I, and I understand perfectly what you're saying, but I just want to make sure that listeners understand all of that quote street cred as authenticity and being a man of God. 
but you were really afraid that Bill and your wife were going to be done with you. Like you were convinced that that was the end of the relationship. Isn't that crazy? Because I hear you say that now, and that sounds absurd. I mean, right. we, we teach that we draw closer to each other, and there wasn't anything that I had done. It's not like I had stolen heroin on the black market. It it, it was something that had happened to me. But it felt like if you knew that about me, you would be uh, embarrassed for me, disgusted by me, want to somehow distance yourself from me. Uh, because just uh, you just feel unclean. That's that's what you've. Even though I know all these truths about what Christ had done to me and for me, and and what was true about my life, what would you do about it? I I knew what He had done about it. I knew that mm-hmm. I were. I I knew that there was no problem. That it's just what would you do about it? And um, still, still even today probably would have to admit that I uh, struggle with people pleasing, still wanting to be loved by every man, woman, and child, not just now, but who has ever lived. You know, so it, it, um, that's the one it's, it's Jesus. I knew he was okay with me, but I thought, man, oh man, what will happen to me now? Will people be embarrassed for me? When I preach, if this word gets out, will people be embarrassed for me mm. and pull away? All those, all those things are the, the, the messages of shame, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that something is fundamentally, uniquely wrong about John Lynch, and more so than Michael, more so than anybody on this planet, even though I know and can preach and can teach the truths of authenticity, of grace, of forgiveness, of a shame-free identity, of all those things. Um, it's still, there's a lag time in believing that uh, in my real relationships. Yeah. It's a lot of us um, for a long time. I, I keep running into people who tell me I'm just now starting to, trust to take off my mask. And there are people who've been in ministry 30, 40 years in significant places. So tell me about all of this that we're talking about that happened in your life. Um, This is really the heart and soul of your mission is to bring this good news to people. And you're not a psychotherapist. You're not uh, Renee Brown, an academic that's going around doing research or talking about this. You, you filter all of this, uh, into and through the gospel so that the gospel really sets people free and so that the gospel is more deeply understood. So talk to me about how that came to be in your life. Yeah. Well, thanks. Uh, I came to Christ uh, December 23rd, 1979, through through um, my high school students when I was teaching uh, here in Phoenix uh, at Arcadia High School. And I, 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 I thought... I thought you were going to say through the through your high school students in your youth ministry that you were running while you were on staff at the church. <laughs> no, no, but these, I, I didn't know the first play. I, I was an English teacher and a drama teacher, and I didn't know the first play that I cast, uh, two-thirds of the kids were young life kids. And wow. and they they would just stay with me after rehearsal and just talk me through. Somebody had given me a Keith Green album. Somebody had given me a Slow Train Coming album by Bob Dylan. Uh, and I, um, the last thing in the world that I was supposed to do was become a believer. And um, so I, um, in this studio apartment, December 23rd, 1979, I I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to say it. I, I I got down on my knees and said some, every single day I kept renewing it because I wasn't sure it took. And, hmm. um, but within, I was the most free, playful, uh, happy, delighted uh, person that you can imagine. But it's interesting to me. I got religious within six to nine months of that. I, I, that shame, I thought, if I felt dry or if I felt any distance from God, I thought, 
I've messed this thing up. I knew it. I, I was a loser. I was a failure. I lost my girlfriend, uh, the homecoming queen, and this is going to be just like that. If you get to know me enough, close enough, you will reject me. Mm-hmm. And God is no different. And I've done enough things to disappoint him and hurt him and uh, anger him or whatever. Um, so, so when um, I came out of seminary, I went all the way through seminary, I think, believing that. I am div, capital sigma, did really, really well. But I, I would say that I had a worm theology. And, and I showed up at this place, Open Door Fellowship, where I still am after all these years. And Thrall was there. And here was this CPA, this ex-CPA, this politically conservative dude in a suit with a bunch of hippies in his audience. And he's telling these truths um, of grace and teaching these truths of grace. And it wasn't even so much his words. It was the nonverbal of that environment that over time uh, convinced me. Uh, Someone, I was actually preaching. Bill had me start preaching, even though I didn't know what I was talking about. I was still a moralist. Mm. And it was one Sunday I was in Ephesians 2, and somebody had given me Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, that week. Mm. And I found myself saying, um, I sure hope this branch holds, but I'm going to stop trying to hold on to God and believe that he's holding on to me. And uh, I was terrified because I had, had given up my life. I'd given up my relationships of the, the, and, and told people about Jesus and, and who he was in me. So I was terrified that it wouldn't work and that I would drift away. And, um, but uh, so far, I'm still here. Well, and, and uh, thank the Lord that you are. Out of that came really what's become a life focus of what you and Bruce McNichol and Bill yeah. Thrall at Trueface uh, called the original gospel. Do you still yeah. use that, that wording? Yeah, the original good news. Yeah, the original good news. It, it's uh, stunning how quickly the church gave up the original good news, isn't it? I mean, when you when you look at how quickly uh, moralism, law, uh, performance, uh, sanctification by my good works. Uh, kind of overplated that freedom, the gospel. So it's become an obsession uh, to be able to offer that good news to others who are still believing that somehow uh, they, apart from Christ in them, uh, is they're, that they're bringing something to God to impress him to be enough. That that concept, I mean, Galatians 2.20 of I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the freedom of believing that I'm not just a saved sinner, but something happened that actually fused me with Jesus. And I don't know where he leaves off and I start up, but I'm a brand new creature. I can never be identified as a loser again or as a a failure, that he's crazy about me. There's nothing he can do to love me more or that make him love me more or nothing I can do that will make him love me less. Uh, that, That trusting that I won't take advantage of grace, that there's that I don't want to play a game with God, trusting that his nature in me is enough to actually vitally um, cause me to get to obey from my heart. That's been a, that's been a game changer for me. And Mm. to, to watch my children grow up in that, to watch my friends grow up and, and now to be the 65 year old man, I just turned 65 a couple well, on the 16th of February. Happy birthday. Thank you, friend. It was my birthday month, and so it just ended. So my daughter had set up that every single day, uh, man, I, I'm, 
I may not make it through the interview. I may pass pass on or be translated. I read, I read oh. her tribute to you on Facebook. Oh. That was amazing. Oh. I teared up. Oh, man. Well, every day she set it up that somebody uh, out on our front porch, there was a basket. And every single day, some friend of mine, there would be a note in there from her letter and a gift. And so I got 28 days. It was a bad month. It should have been like September or something. With 31 <laughs> oh, Michael, it has been incredible. And I will just stare at these letters and say, could it be true? Am I this person mm. in me that they're describing? And because I trust them so much and love them so much, I go, yeah, this is who you've matured me into, God. Thanks. So it's been an amazing journey to, um, to hope, to go from that place when, when you're a young uh, preacher of these truths saying, I hope this is true because it would free people. I hope it holds. I hope these words that I'm saying, I'm not just um, slanting scripture to say what I want it to say. I hope that I'm teaching accurately these truths so that they can transform a generation. So to, to get to be 65 and go, well, for crying out loud, it actually works. It really, <laughs> this actually has played out and my kids uh, don't carry a lot of the stuff that their dad did and does. And my grandkids have a chance of it not even showing up in their lives. Now that's pretty beautiful. Mm -hmm. That is beautiful. And that it, isn't that the power of the good news that we all hope it has, is that it somehow takes root and it, it not only changes us from the inside out, but somehow that it changes the legacy uh, of, of uh, our children and our children's children. And y your description of that, you get, to, you get a glimpse of how that happens. Yeah, it's, I, there was a time when, uh, I don't know if I have good language for this, maybe the first time I said it, where I wasn't present in the moment with my family. Hmm. That, uh, John Lynch was still watching from behind a mask. And I have to say now, my grandkids and my kids, they know the real John Lynch the best I know how to show the real John Lynch. And um, I get to enjoy them and they get to enjoy me. And so that that this birthday was just one of those times where your family gets to say to you, Dad, this has been real to us. This is not just about it being real for you. But but this is huge for us. It paid off for our family. Hmm. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. You know, as I, as I watch you on the screen, and our listeners are not going to see the video, I see that you're, uh, for probably two or three minutes, you've, you've been welling up with emotion just thinking about this. And I'm struck by how much more vulnerable it can be to share these longings and this this incredulity of believing we really are that loved, that it's more vulnerable to share that than it is at times to share, I was abused or here's this horrible thing about me. Because that is a mark upon us, but it was in the past. Yeah. And in the moment where you're just ambushed with love and affection, you have to let go of control to really receive that. And That's right. there's certain days where I just didn't even want to open up the letter because it was that's so fragile. And, and you do lose control in that moment in, in, in daring to receive that kind of love. As Again, so just the last thing about watching your face, it makes me think of Romans 2, where it says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Right. It's not beating the crap out of ourselves, uh, as as we're, you and I are both so familiar with as our reflex, but it's it's really resting and living in that gaze of of love. Gosh, I wish I wish we could give that gift. I wish we had words and some way that we could give that gift. I when you talk about my mission of what do I hope to get across, it is the kindness and the tenderness and the beauty along with the power and the sovereignty 
of our God. And I think I want so much to display that in language in, and in the way that uh, we talk about love, that, that like men can talk about love, that we love each other, that, that we could learn to talk to each other without the put down, without the rough man talk, that we could be men's men uh, by expressing uh, vulnerability and authenticity and to be able to give and receive real true deep affirmation of who we are, not just what we can do well, but who we are as people and what we value. And to be able to say that to each other is it just allows us to dare believe that this gospel, the kindness of our God, it brings us to a place of just saying, here I am. I don't want to put on a show. I don't want to bluff. I don't want to pretend. I don't want to uh, selfishly have a life of my own that I independently, uh, if that's true, if I am Christ in me, then that longing to love and be loved, it's innate to me. It's deep, deep, deep within me. And when we can provide a culture and an environment where that is the spendable currency, we get the best out of each other, don't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it sometimes sounds cliche, but love, true love as embodied in Jesus, who points us to the invisible image of God, that 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 kind of love really is just transformational. It's 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 Absolutely. it's what changes the world by changing one person at a time. That's right. And it's uh, I remember we were with uh, Ernest Borgnine one time, long time ago. Mikhail's Navy. Yeah, but a group called Edmus. The Ernest, we started this group called the Ernest Borgnine Memorial Music Appreciation Society, and we'd get together and just play music for each other and hang out and have cigars and drink wine and pray for each other. And it was a beautiful thing. Anyway, before he passed away, he found out about us and he showed up. <laughs> and he, he came to one of our events and at the end of the weekend, he just said, um, guys, all my life I've been affirmed for what I can do. This weekend was the first time I've been affirmed um, for who I am. Wow. And a bunch of men half my age. And, and he said, if I thought church was like this, and you guys haven't talked to me about church or God, but I know that that's what you guys are about if it was like this, I, I would go. And so it was a beautiful, sacred reality that, um, man, I think a lot of us are afraid if we really do truly affirm each other that you know, it'll go to our heads and we'll be prideful. But, but in reality, affirmation, it humbles the heart. When we get affirmation, it it melts our heart, and I want to do more of who you say I am. I want to be more of that in the place that affirm me. It's a sacred, beautiful transaction that I think if we got that, we would do it in business and marriages and family and friendships and churches and small groups and father and daughter and mother and aunt. I don't know if that's possible. Mother and aunt, somehow. <laughs> we know what you meant. Yeah, but we would absolutely spend it like confetti. It's interesting to me, uh, not in a bad way, but again, I'm 53, you're 65. Um, you're kind of the older brother figure to me. And when you were talking about the letters for your birthday and those words of blessing, your response was, and I say this in relation to that love puts us in a place of humility. You said, could it really be true? You know, so there, there's that sense of, we don't just immediately go, oh yeah, I'm awesome. You know, because, because nobody reflexively believes that since the fall, right? Because the, because the accusation and the lie against us, but then Christ allows us to go, maybe that is true. And maybe there's something more than my brokenness and my sin. And maybe there is glory there. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. I, I truly believe that. I think those of us who ha are in authority or have roles, I think if we knew that that's what that would do, that it would 
unlock this confidence that the gospel's true in me, that, that it's actually worked. That I remember the first time they, in my staff, when I was pastoring a church, and they put me in the middle. It was on my birthday, and they, they surrounded me, and every person affirmed me. I just went out. Um, I had a, an appointment at uh, Sweet Tomatoes, and I was out in the parking lot, and I just sobbed. I just thought, God, you did it. You, you, hmm. The person that I longed to someday be, not identified by my shame, but freed to love and be playful and convince others of this environment of grace that they could live in, you made me uh, a, a, a real conduit of that. And people are telling me that. They're telling me uh, about this environment that's freed them. I just sobbed uh, that, that it could be true. I love that word playful. Um, through our friend Paul, uh, he, he uses that word a lot, who says that God didn't uh, save us so that he can use us. He saves us to make us whole and then calls us out to play. And it seems like the most playful people with that kind of childlike joy are people that have been, for one reason or another, brought against the wall and had to encounter that kind of um, relentless, merciful, unending love that just leads you to a place of going, I'm free. That's right. I, Brennan says that, doesn't he? Didn't he say that? That <clears throat> Why is that? That some people say life owes me a shrimp cocktail a certain way. And, and others just say, and you delight in me. You're not ashamed of me. You enjoy me. You love to play with me. You wanted there to be a Michael Cusack on this earth at this time, exactly the way uh, you are with all of your personality and all of your idiosyncrasies and your insights and laughter and playfulness. He said, I want one of him. I want to make sure there's one of him. And that he absolutely takes great delight and joy in the essence of our being. And he, and he it, hum, it blows him away that we get to have this friendship. Mm. And, this, and he yelps when we get to hang out. <laughs> that's, a, that's a crazy thought. But, mm. but to dare believe it, to dare rest in it, uh, that's why I love the, the heart of man. I, I, when we read that originally, I thought this could be the hokiest movie maybe ever produced. Mm. And they killed it. They made this movie that showed, um, I think the love of the father doesn't say no cause, cause love of the father is needs meeting, but the delight of the father, the playfulness of the father, the, the, um, all the time in the world, uh, attitude of the father. Man, I love how that movie conveys it so wonderfully. Just grew the sun. You know, we were sitting there in that that nightclub in Hollywood, and I saw, and I'm sorry I'm blanking on his name, but the actor uh, who played the father in, in the Prodigal Son remake within the Heart of Man movie, and he and his wife who I believe she was born in Poland. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and, and he looked totally different. So I walked up to him and I introduced myself and we sat there for an hour talking about his story and his life. And it was really clear to me as delightful a man as he was uh, that he was not a Christ follower. And I hope that doesn't like break people's hearts who have seen the movie but what was absolutely fascinating to me, even though he wasn't a Christ follower, how excited he was to be able to communicate this idea of God as in the way that he did. And over and over and over again, he said, um, I hope that this is going to draw people together in a whole new way. And yeah. he must have said that 10 times. And it was as if he was saying, if this is what God is like, then I want everybody to know. Absolutely. I, that, I, I met him that night, and um, 
he introduced himself. So I thought, well, uh, well, I bet you you were a key grip or a gaff or you know, I have no idea who you are. And he finally introduced that he was the father in the, uh, oh my, you look nothing like it. You seem nothing like it. What a brilliant acting portrayal. But I had that same experience. He was there that evening with us. And during the experience of the making of that movie, and he said, if this is the gospel, then, then I only know how to ask the question of how to get all in, but I want others to get this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought to myself at that moment and later that night, and I'm quoting Mike Iaconelli, who first said this to me, but I thought, I said, if he's not a Christian, then I'm not a Christian. (laughs) That's right. Because his, you know, his heart was somewhere that his culture and his words and his understanding just couldn't articulate. So, you know, how, how do you not embrace something that you, is so good that you want to give it away to others, even though you don't know what it is? So, <laughs> well said. One of the major themes, even through the novels, that I want to unpack a little bit is yep. this idea of the two roads or the two rooms. And will you yep. talk about that just to give people a framework? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Bill and Bruce and I have been together for a long, long time. Uh, the, the conviction that we would test these things out in community we've written almost all of our books together three authors together which is a publisher's nightmare and uh it's not easy to do um but it is it's been a honest vulnerable powerful horrible uh set of relationships to do this and and i'm uh i, I can't imagine doing it with anyone else uh, uh, i can't imagine um, doing this uh, when it, either Bill or Bruce is not part of it, or I'm not part of it, just just astonishing. But they came to me. Um, they had gone on a retreat. I was preaching an open door at the time, and they they had already started up True Face. I wasn't part of it yet. They came back to me from a retreat and gave me this concept of um, from Hebrews 11 um, that. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, that, that noun form of the word pistos, that uh, faith, and the verb form being trust. And without trust, it's impossible to please God. And they came back and tried to, to present to me that they were setting pleasing God and trusting God in opposition from each other, that, that we can be a group of people that um, promotes trying to please God as our primary motive instead of trusting God. And I said, guys, you can't do that. That's, that's terrible. But no, that's, that's wrong. And they said, no, 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 John, not pleasing God. Of course, it's important. It's sacred. It's everything, but it just can't be our primary motivation or it'll imprison our hearts. I said, no, no, this, no, this is a bad idea. Go back. Try again. And um, as we talked that night, I thought, that is one of the most salient distinctions of the gospel that I've ever heard. And they said to me, um, well, we're, we're happy with that because we've been invited to go speak to the Navigators National Conference. And you'll be the one coming up with a message for that. On, on those things. <laughs> so the humility of those guys to say, Lynch, you're the one who's supposed to bring this um, still blows me away. They still do it. They still put me in those spots. Um, when I haven't been the primary source material of taking it from the word and, and they'll say, John, it's, it's on you now. So that was actually the, when I gave the two roads talk, it was the second time I'd ever tried maybe the first time I had ever put it fully together as a message. And uh, I got to walk out on the stage. I didn't like the navigators. I thought they were kind of a rough organization at the time. And um, my son was running a cross country meet back in Arizona. I, I didn't want to be there in Florida, giving this talk. I walk out on stage and I hadn't seen the stage. It brought me from backstage and I walk on. There's these two walkways that go out into the middle of the audience Oh, the pleasing God path, trusting God path. I thought, I'm in puppy heaven. This is going to be fun. <laughs> so, um, 
But that conviction of the room of grace and the room of good intentions that most of us spend our lives striving hard to please God enough, um, working hard on our sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And instead, to dare believe that what he wants is me to trust who he says I am in him and who he is in me, and that that will please him. That that by itself will please him, that I'm Christ in me on my worst day. And that dynamic of that being true not only pleases him, but it frees me. It causes me to sin less. It causes me to love more, to depend upon that simple reality of I am Christ in John Lynch wearing a robe of righteousness all the time, that I'm actually righteous, actually holy, not someday or forensically or judicially or poetically righteous, but actually, and now I'm just maturing into that DNA. When when I get a hold of that, it breaks the power of things that have plagued me all my life. Mm. Instead of being this this person who's trying to perform God to to, to somehow be enough, uh, I'll, and I'll make promises and I'll I'll tell them this time I really mean it. Uh, keeps us trapped and ensnared in our own self effort. So to dare believe that he says, um, John, for you to live out in humility, trusting me with who I say you are, that actually the shed blood of Christ was strong enough for him to come all the way around my sin. For the believer, he was never over there on the other side of my sin. That instead he stands right in front of my face and says, John, I know from the beginning, Before the world began, I know, and I'm crazy about you. I'm not disgusted. I'm not angry. I'm crazy about you. And he he holds me so tight until he's convinced I believe it. Mm. And then, and only then, does he put his arm around me so that we can look at my issues together. And he says, and kid, we'll deal with it when you're ready. I got you. I've... I've made you, and I've made you to want to obey from the heart. All we had to do was get the religious tripe out of the way, the, the man-made rules and regulations that said, come on, come on, you got to do more, you got to do better. The appeal to the flesh, that motivation that's working in so many of our churches that was working in this preacher for years. Mm. I I tried so hard to get people to buck up, even though I couldn't do it myself. And and to be able to instead say, uh, no longer are we going to appeal to the flesh. We're going to be convinced that Christ dwells in me and the real me wants to love and be loved and obey from the heart. Man. If I could, if I could give one message for the rest of my life, every single day of my life, I think I would want to give that message. So, John, our friend Tony Anderson said, uh, actually, in a podcast several months ago, and and he got in trouble for this, and I got some hate mail. Um, he said that the greatest unreached people group on the planet today are evangelical Christians. And um, you're talking, and I find myself exhaling, and I feel so compelled, and yet we both know people and churches and groups and communities uh, for whom this news is too good to be true, or they attack it, they dismiss it. And I'm not blaming those people because that same energy can be in me in a nanosecond uh, in any given circumstance. What is it? about our human tendency to want to push away that grace and to to clench our fist against that kind of reckless love. Yeah. It's interesting. I was at this Christian Camping International conference, the Ohio group, and I'm I'm signing a book from someone and someone comes up and says, 
Tony Anderson, you know, Tony Anderson <laughs> just starts bragging on, he says, I do, I do videos and I do not do any videos without the sound bed being from Tony Anderson. So I, it was just to, to be in the middle of Ohio somewhere and <laughs> at, a, at a camp and some guy bragging on Tony. He's the best. He's the yeah. best. And I love what he said. Let's say hello to Tony on the count of three. One, two, three. Oh, Hi, Tony. Tony. We love you, man. Love you, too. So I just texted that to him the other day just to uh, – <laughs> and he responded. They, and he says, isn't it good that we're free from camping? There's air conditioning and homes now. That we don't have to camp anymore. That's so funny. Hey, I was I, I was uh, uh, sitting around the other day, and I got a text from my friend Ray Haddad, who is a uh, Lebanese man who grew yes. up in Abu Dhabi. And I met him in Abu Dhabi, and we had uh, lunch in Atlanta a couple months ago when I was passing through. So I get a text from him from Abu Dhabi, and it's he and Tony sitting in the desert having lunch. And I, I kind of introduced them and they knew each other through their industry, but they finally got to meet. And there again is another example of the small world of mutual friends. Um, I'm not surprised. I'm not, if I, if we take a picture of the moon and he's there, I, I won't. <laughs> um, well, in answer to that, I, I honestly think um, that we are afraid that we're not new creatures. I, I honestly think that we think we we will take advantage of this. Mm. If we're given this freedom, and there isn't some, now we got to mix grace with uh, with what with what? All grace, all truth is in grace. All grace is in truth, and. I think we're afraid what we'll do with it, that, that I don't have a new heart, but I do. So if that's, if the passage I just read, if, if that um, he, God, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to actually become sin on my behalf, that I would become in that same moment, just like in the same moment Jesus became my sin, that I would become the righteousness of Christ in him. Yeah, then, then I don't have to be afraid that if I let this run its course and really lived it out and really believed that he's really delighted with exactly where Johnny Lynch is right now, that I'm right on time, what would I do with that? And I know for the longest time, uh, I believed I just had to hold on to Jesus or, or he would go away. Mm-hmm. And so I also think a lot of us who are in power, who have authority, who are pastors, um, there is, there is a, mm, these are hard words, but there's a control that keeps people coming to church. That there's a, you, you dangle a carrot out in front, but you make sure that they never get that carrot. Um, um, because their attendance is vital and their sense of you being the great dispenser of wisdom that they can never quite attain to is vital for that authority and that power. It's not authority. It is just title and power. But I, I watch that. I watch so many places where I've gone where that second tier of leadership is begging for us to come, but the senior pastor is terrified that we'll come because oh, Oh man, it, his he's he's afraid, um, and the trouble is, he's preaching a message of be more like me. I, I'm above you. I'm I'm better at this than you. But he's hiding. He's just yeah. full hiddenness because there's none of us who are together. There's just that person doesn't exist. We are all a mess. Yeah. We're all at the same time that I am Christ in John Lynch, fully fused with Jesus Christ, my motives are pure about 34% of the time. And that's up from 27%. So, it, and I know that that is true about every human being on this planet. So it's terrifying for a pastor to dare believe these truths if you haven't believed them before, because it's so hard to change the horse in midstream and the thought of having to say, 
to your congregation or your um, whoever it is you're leading, I think I've seen this wrong. Will you go back to shore with me and let's get a seaworthy boat and we're all going to get a little wet in this process? Uh, it's scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. So I, I think I keep hoping this next generation is able to grab these truths uh, because sometimes um, I wonder if, if Tony isn't right, at least about uh, my generation, that it, that it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, how many times have you and I been converted? And I don't mean the salvation to get us into heaven, but that, that deep sense of, could this really be true? And, and um, I think until life has not worked, whether through physical suffering or sin or brokenness or loss, when, when you hit that wall, as you guys talk about, um, then you've got to turn to something deeper that you can't manage or control. Yeah. It would, what do we, it would, uh, that line that we say before, uh, the one about uh, love more, not less, than the telling of who I really am, we make that statement, um, we're all awakening to the pain of realizing I can't control my world the way I thought I could, stuck with unresolved issues uh, whose symptoms I'm trying to fix without the help of anybody else, that um, we are all... We can see it, but I don't know even know what the issues are. I just know I'm trying to fix symptoms so I don't embarrass myself. Mm. Um, just even recently, in the last few years, I've um, I've struggled with incredible pain with this stupid neuropathy that I've battled with this nerve pain, and the answers. Uh, you have to answer the sovereignty of God issue, the goodness of God issue. You have to answer all those. Um, you have to have someone with you help you unpack those maybe lies that you've told yourself and didn't know how to stop telling yourself that God, um, are you as good to me as you are to others? Mm. You love me like you love others. And to have someone, uh, like you say, I have to get reconverted again. I have to believe this now in a whole new set of circumstances, in yeah. a whole new normal of, uh, I just had a stroke six months ago, and or nine months ago, and I can't even remember dates any longer. But I had a stroke, and, and it's just like, okay, this is my new normal now, God. Where are you? Where are you when my gifts might not get to be used in the same way? Mm. Where are you as I'm starting to walk off the stage? Where, where are you in my identity when um, I, I was I got so much affirmation and adulation and love and delight by being this guy, and now I can mm. no longer maybe be that guy. Where are you now? So, so it's constantly. Um, saying, is this true now? It's not, it's not a once, it's not an aorist tense. It's a present tense experience. I, I love what we say that, that it, it, um, it's a, it's maybe a long walk to get to the room of grace. Uh, and it may be a long walk to get to the room of good intentions, but the distance between the two uh, rooms is about five minutes that I, I can, I, the room of good intentions. I, I have a smoking jacket there. I know how to get there. Hmm. John, if, if you have a couple more minutes, um, cause I know we're at the well, top I of the, go. I just sit around here waiting for people to call. Hey, <laughs> you, uh, you just brought a topic up that I had no intention of talking about, but my heart literally started to race. Uh, I think cause it's personally an issue I'm wrestling with, but I sense that this is an issue for a lot of people in the age group between I'm 53 and you're 65. And, and I want to call it um, walking off the stage uh, in a way that's free. 
And here's here's my story and my background is um, for years I was like, well, if I don't get a PhD, then I'm not as good as blank. And if I don't write a book, then I'll never be as valuable as blank. And if if the next book I write is not a New York Times bestseller, then I can never die happy and on and on and on. And I find myself at 53 in some ways like in my prime and freer and healthier than I've ever been. And yet I'm also aware that uh, that there's a sense in which I'm becoming more irrelevant in terms of all the things I used to think were relevant. I no longer have to be funny when I go up and I uh, speak and I, I no longer have to worry as much about how I do, but there's this increasing sense over the next 10 years, five years, 20 years, that the curtain's going to close and someone else is going to walk out and I'm going to walk back. And that that brings me a sense of existential terror. <laughs> and yeah. so it's a little vulnerable talking about this on a podcast because yeah. who knows who's going to listen. But But when you said walking off the stage, how do I do that with a sense of, kind of exhaling in the same way that I talked about in the, the easy way, but to be able to go what I bring today or tomorrow or 20 years from now is enough. And so, you know, Bill, Bill Thrall, he's what, 78 or 79. Yeah. And he, he stepped back from the public eye to, to yeah. some degree. Yeah. And other men, I talked to Gordon McDonald uh, not too long ago and it feels like, oh, I can't, I can't do that. I've got to push more, run harder, be more successful. And that's bondage. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. So give me the advice. Give me the steps. Well, I, there's no steps and no advice. And uh, just first this, isn't it interesting? You say that about yourself and it causes me to love you more. It causes you to be vitally interesting to me. And, and I know you should be vitally interesting anyways. I know who you are and I know, about <laughs> you. but truly we've, we've gone on spendable currency from other relationships with each other. And what you just did, I just went, so how do I get vacation time with this guy? Hmm. Because, um, that's, that's authenticity that um, makes you relevant in this next generation. Hmm. I, I, I just thought how fascinating like uh, you and your bride are in the study guide for, for the heart of man. How fascinating that um, Jason Pamer and Jens and, and Tony, that they chose old guys and old girls to tell this story when it came time for the heart of man. These next-gen directors and producers and writers wanted us. They wanted, they wanted old cats because they trust our message now. Mm. They, they have watched the authenticity of our message, and now it gets to be used in a greater way than in my 30s or 40s or Bill's 50s or Bruce's 60s or your 50s. You'll probably find out that some of your most important stuff is in your 60s. And, and I, when people used to tell that to me when I was in my 30s or 40s, I thought, no, I, I'll be senile. What, are you kidding me? But I am delighting in the season. And, and it's so interesting to watch as I'm trying to step off the stage because that stroke did something to me that caused me to say, um, I do not want to miss my kids and my grandkids. I do not want to miss playfulness i do not want to miss people with a glass of wine sitting around my fireplace getting the best of me without that um without that stuff that caused me to hurt people because i was still striving to be someone great mm. i want mm. them to get that and what i discover is that's true is i i i can't get off the stage <laughs> I'm trying to get off the stage, but I've never been busier in my whole life. I, I'm getting to 
write this devotional for True Face right now. Which I never thought I'd, I never thought a devotional would even make sense. But I'm I'm 150 entries in to this year long devotional, getting to talk about this practical reality of the language of love and how we get to affirm each other and love each other, and then just playful, silly pieces. So all that to say, um, I love what you said, that we are less relevant in the terms that we created way back then. But those um, the terms of relevance have changed for us. Mm. And, and you even know the answer to your own question because you know the terms of relevance have changed for you and, and for the people that you cherish and value. So, uh, and, and it's so interesting for me to think, um, would I think more of you with another book written or if you got a doctorate behind your, or in front of your name or if you took stage at, at whatever the conference is? And the answer is no. You would not be more interesting or more delightful or more relevant or more important to me. Um, what just happened five minutes ago in you saying the words that you did to me? That's why I think I wanted to say that because I just went, well, now we've, we, <laughs> here we are on the Zoom cast. And I go, I know who you are. Hmm. You really, in real time, know who you are. Yeah. So, so I, I think there's a whole generation who need fathers and they need big brothers and they are counting on, uh, there's these beautiful guys out of San Antonio, uh, Chad and Ree and others that they seek us out now because they've watched that we've had a chance to fail and learn and stand in uh, these truths. And we're, uh, we're just more interesting and relevant and, important to them than we could have been in our 40s or 50s man you're uh, you're preaching to my heart and it's interesting because you said i i already know this and you're right but when you were speaking about walking off the stage uh and here's a phrase i often use there was a part of my heart uh a, a fragment of it that um that went, I can't do that. And then as you start to speak, the rest of my heart that knew that exhaled again. And But but let's come full circle, and this will be a great place to end this conversation for the sake of time. As you were talking, I, I pictured myself um, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, with none of the adornment, none of the, uh, the, the, the charm or the, you know, the, the skinny jeans. <laughs> Yeah. Or any, anything that I think would make me additive. And I say, could it really be true? Yeah. Could it really be true that I could just be a naked old man yeah. with a cane and yeah. coughing and, and, and that people would go, I, I want that. Not yeah. Michael, but Christ in him, but yeah. I, I want to be holy. And man, that changes my perspective. And, and that makes me believe. So I, I want people to hear that just like I said, oh, well, you really believed all those things like your wife and Bill would leave you, you know, if you if you shared who you were. And that, that here I am going, of course, my value is not defined in my speaking ability or anything like that. But but deep down, there's a part of me that's not yet been converted that goes. Could it really be true? Yeah, absolutely. I, man, these. Uh, I hope this is valuable for someone else other than us, but it sure is valuable for us. Um, yeah. The other day, I said to Amy, uh, my oldest daughter, who has uh, two children, uh, Ridge and Navy, they're two and nine months, and I I apologized for her. Uh, to her and I just said I'm so sorry this neuropathy it keeps me sometimes from getting down on the ground with with your kids and I'm I'm uh, and she just says dad I don't even know that I just know that you're dad and, mm -hmm. and I want them to be around you 
every chance I can, every chance I can. She just doesn't, there's, she just doesn't even see who I see, who I think that I'm not. She just sees this man that she's fallen in love with and loves and trusts and needs and wants her kids to have my influence. And inside, I'm a, I'm a mess. And she, all she can see is this really good man. Mm-hmm. And uh, God does that. God vindicates. God uh, builds into and then makes sure that he allows people to that that's what this whole last month has been with these letters that I've been getting is he lets us um that's all they're doing is saying I see you I see who you are you're you're not handsome anymore you're not you're not fast anymore you're not as sharp you're not as funny as you used to be anymore but I need you more mm-hmm. I delight in you more you're and God does that in us, and he is, and he's responsible for allowing others to see us that way. And I have to count on him that he's done that. And Michael, I just want to tell you, um, you're already there. You're just already there, and it's we're we're just getting to articulate those conversions that we're having to each other, and mm. it's just so good. It's so good for me to hear you say the words you're saying, it causes me, interesting, it causes me to trust you, really trust you. Um, I, I wish, I wish we could even uh, preach that to a lot of other men, that that's a great, great gift that we get to give it to each other. But there are a lot of people on those ladders still trying to perform and they are, um, devastated because they're just it's just like that attractive woman who realizes i'm not as attractive what do i do now who am i now Mm. a a lot of us who have depended upon our relevancy um, have lost those venues and and are afraid that there's nothing there behind the screen Mm. so powerful this i feel like this podcast was uh for me and also, just to to connect with you, I I, I just feel uh, poured into by your words and trusting that this is helpful for others. So I'm going to get in touch with you, and I'm going to fly down to Phoenix and sit around your fire with you. Well, that would be you will have a place here, and you will have a place around my fireplace because that's that's right in these years, especially with this neuropathy. That's where I'm doing life best and most is in those conversations that we get to have with each other like this. That's, that's all it is. An excuse for guys to sit down for a while. I I would love that. I can't think of a better way to end my Friday afternoon at four o'clock. It's been a full week, but man, this is just, this is not only the cherry on top, it's the icing and the cake. Well, my friend, we've talked about doing this for a long time. I'm just so grateful we got to. Me too. Love you, John. I'm thankful for you. Michael, same here, my brother. All right. Thanks Thanks for all that are listening today. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. RestoringTheSoul.com.